This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Literary Treks. This is episode number 251. I am Bruce Gibson here on your official Trek FM podcast about Star Trek books and comics. And, of course, I can never do this alone. Well, I mean, I could, but it would be awful. So with me is Dan Gunther. Dan, how's it going? Hey, Bruce. Happy to be here again. I got to tell you, it's been a heck of a long week, and I always look forward to sitting here and talking about Star Trek books. So, so happy to be here. You have no idea. Oh, no, I do know because I feel the same way. (laughs) (laughs) This is like the highlight of my week. Just don't tell my wife that. So anyway, (laughs) um, (laughs) let's go on to the news. The one thing we want to mention, and we knew about this a couple months ago, that there's been an update to the Star Trek Stellar Cartography book, maps, whatever you want to call it. And it's done by Larry Nemechek, a.k.a. Dr. Trek. And, you know, I think it would probably be helpful to explain what the updates are is to have Larry here on the show. What do you think, Dan? I think that's a good idea. Hold on. Let me just. Yep. I just opened the door and there he is. Oh, Larry, how's it going? Well, you guys. Hey, listen, you don't know. I, I'm supposed to be almost eating dinner. It's just amazing I happen to just catch you here. This is this is great. Oh, it's perfect. <laughs> I, do you expect us to feed you dinner? Is that why you came over? No, no, no. I, uh, <laughs> I just beamed in the back door. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm a little rusty here on keeping up the, the Trek FM. Uh, oh, look, we're all here in the, in the same cargo bay together thing. So, um <laughs> Good acoustics in the cargo bay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I guess, though, for your show, we're in the non-existent, why the hell do they have a library on the Enterprise-E when on the consoles can access all information anyway, library room with the with the almost deleted scene old school marm librarian officer. Mm-hmm. Who's shushing us from time to time because we're just a little too excited about Star Trek books. <laughs> I had forgotten about that. Yes, that's a good point. Well, you know, I alternate between physical books and ebooks, so maybe that's what they do on the read e- all the ebooks. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> ah. <laughs> on the e- yeah. I see about that. Yeah. Wow. Well, 
Let, let's talk about the stellar <laughs> cartography before we get too weird. Um, <laughs> what? I, the last one came out, what, 2013? 2013, what? can you believe 2013. that? 2013. Okay, so now we're f- five years later. After five more years of exploring, we had things to add. So tell us about the 2013 edition and how that has been updated now for 2018. Well, right. 2013 was not a standalone. I mean, if, if you have been a longtime Star Trek star fan, and who's not, you, your memory hole may go all the way back to the original series Tech Manual when, when um, uh, Franz Joseph Schnabelt took a shot at a star chart layout, and then it was updated in 79. These are all unofficial, but, you know, beloved things. The last thing that was not pocketbooks put out... Uh, was nonfiction from Bantam, was a star charts in a pouch that I worked on. Um, I'm, I'm condensing history here. And then and then the, the next generation explosion comes and everything that was attempted before that is not unofficial and not canon. It's all beloved in a lot of ways, but it doesn't really make sense. And next generation is going by the Bible that Mike Akuda bit by bit is laying down. And when you have the price come along in third season next generation, suddenly we're talking about uh, you know, gamma and delta quadrants, and what does that mean? And so Mike had started roughing in, came up with the quadrant system then, and put and located the you know the the Klingons and the and the Romulans and the Federation, and then the Cardassians very soon after that, and the Borg are up there in the delta quadrant somewhere. And then when we get to Enterprise, Jeff Mandel is on staff, and Jeff is my old long distance. I never met him until we were both in L.A from the time we were in college originally until like 94, only talking on letters because even long-distance phone calling was too expensive way back in the day, kids. But we would work together on some of those early projects and for his fanzine, and now he reached out to me to help um, work on his book he did in 2002 because he was working on Enterprise on the art department and bringing up a lot of real stars converted over into Star Trek's needs. And that's on Enterprise when everything was so, you know, oh, here's the Vulcan star charts and everything was so old school and everything was close to Earth. That was the other thing. They weren't off where you could just come up with, you know, we're going to call this Ralph 4. You know, you had actual star, if not stars, you could only go so far without bumping into, you know, a a star that would have have a Goldilocks zone. The, oh, be a fine girl, kiss me right now, Susie mnemonic. You're welcome. That's Astronomy 101. And of the <laughs> OBA, I have to do the letters, FG, Fine Girl, Kiss Me, FGKMs, those are the stellar classes that have Goldilocks zones around them, which I knew in the 70s what I could get off out of my little dinky libraries when I was doing my stuff in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Now it's all online and we you don't have to write somebody at the Harvard Observatory who will send you back a handwritten letter like I did when I was in college for these obscure stars. But Jeff, uh, and there'll be a quiz on all that tomorrow. Jeff <laughs> <laughs> um, had gotten real stars charted in the way that made sense the way Star Trek looks at star charts, like in the, the galactic plane looking down. And then he started finding homes by the stars that needed to have habitable planets around them throughout all of Star Trek. And by Enterprise, you had original series and next gen and et cetera. Plus, you've always had a lot of real stars in Star Trek, right? Um, Capella and Rigel and Arcturus and, you know, on down, Alpha Centauri on down the line. And uh, sometimes you've, you and you can watch the script developments when hopefully someone, whether it was somebody at Kelm DeForest or Joan Pierce 
or it was Andre Bermanis or Narain Shankar would say, oh, do you really? That's a star that's likely to have, you know, bubble-headed gravity people. It's not going to have class M planets around it. And they would change that if they wanted to use a real star. So it's this mix of totally fictional star names and planets and a lot of the real star names that we know real well. And so assimilating all that, Jeff had done a lot of that. We had done that in various iterations, but not in the layout that wound up getting adopted. And Jeff was doing that on his own for um, for Enterprise, but then he adapted it out for when he got the contract to do the Star Charts book in 0203 and did this huge job and a lot of people. I got to write some of the text in that and helped him from some of our old records uh, update things. But that came out halfway through Enterprise, and people loved it. And then as soon as everybody's, you know, the internet takes over even more so, and people are scanning, after a few years, people were really frustrated that everything was like in pieces and small book pages. And even on a foldout, you only got so much, right? And it was funny. You'd go online and see where people had very carefully scanned all those in and tried to make a big honking image. You know, this is before STO, Star Trek Online came along and was doing kind of the same thing, only for their gameplay. So... 2013, we're in the fallow times, Enterprise has come along, even a couple years after that, that book, Jeff's book came out, and had six or eight people, Jeff, Mandel, and Doug Drexler, I mean uh, Jeff, but Doug Drexler, and Mike Okuda, and myself, and Andre Bermanis, people putting pieces into it. And 2013, they came to me, uh, I knew after the revolution in nonfiction, when Pocketbooks was not doing all the titles, they had these side vendors, and the company was allied with Amazon, said, we want to do something like, and this is after David Goodman did the 150 Years book on the pedestal, and the Star Wars books came out, the jet, you know, they had the pedestal and the interactive bit, and they were trying to find something that they could do on a budget, but that would be kind of a little bit cool and out of the box. So they said, Larry, we want to update the map, but we want to do it from this historical and cultural angle with a book, but with big wall maps, because people are screaming they want big images. And uh, we're going to try to do something a little out of the box, you know, literally. So it's a little bit of a throw. And they didn't get this, but I said, oh, this is cool. It'll be like a throwback to the old blueprints when you were a kid and you had the, you know, and all that. So that was all the mix for that. What I wound up having to do in 2013 was update it for the last couple of years of Enterprise and then at the time stick in the prime part of Star Trek 09, which, you know, the, so, which means, you know, bye-bye Romulus. So that was that. The, so the two big parts in my, on my plate were do that, figure out that, and, uh, and then figure out where the hell the Delphic Expanse was because there were very specific measurements. And it was all in – you couldn't throw it out on the fringe somewhere. It was all right there in very close in space between Earth and Chron between Sol 3 and Kronos in that area. And what I wound up doing was thinking not like Khan, but I went 3D and – and it's like one big long like linguine noodle or something, but to make all the measurements that you had on Aired Cannon fit. But instead of thinking of it in the plane view, look at it sideways and it was like this. And that's how basically when they were going the length of the expanse, they were like in it was like being it was like Fantastic Voyage and being in the Voyager and going through an intestine or something, I guess. I never thought of it till just now. But so that was the main thing there. And then we had the historical map. So you had like ancient Vulcan and Cardassia. So I got to play with how far did the Klingons want to claim, and how far did the Cardassians claim, and what you know, what would be the year and point of historical maps, and then something you know, and and licensing and publishing and I all kind of came up with the. They had the basic idea of a book and the big wall maps, and kind of here's some ideas, and I did feedback, and 
And so we all kind of came to that together. But then I, you know, 95% of the detail was what I brought to it. But then also both editions, the artists. So um, Allie Reese, who a lot of people in fandom know, has done awesome, awesome nebula art. And Ian Fullwood did some of the more graphic-y technical maps. And then Jeff himself did what I, I just call it Map 10 or the, the National Geographic map. Which is like everything, the kitchen sink map. It's like everything is on there all together. That was 2013. And the, the other thing aside from that was a lot of things I got to fix. We were in the fallow years, so there was no active canon. And a lot of stuff around DS9 and the Dominion War. I choreographed the Dominion War. I want that on my tombstone. I made sense of it. <laughs> and, um, and other little glitchy things I feel like I got to, um, got to fix and put together. So I was very proud of it. But still, there were things that, you know, we didn't get to do, but oh well. We did a whole lot with that. And a lot of, most people enjoyed it and, and all that. And lo and behold, I found out, though, as soon as it came out, somebody wrote me and said, you know, online and said, where's, where's Iosha? <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's in there. No, it's not. And I look and look and look, and no, it's not. And I come to find out that, and we had taken the maps, the book, as a blueprint. And I thought, well, that's all been done. I only have to think about last two years of Enterprise and the JJ Prime. And, yeah, and, which doesn't seem like much. And but No, not at all. No. Well, the way these things are timed and budgeted out, it's like that's all you're thinking you're doing. But then I took on, we have to make sense of the Dominion. We're going to do a Dominion War map. I've got to make sense of it somehow. Um, I realized after it was done that we had like 20 or 30 or 40 original series stars that had never been in lo- events and locations that had never been charted. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, that was so recent. It was which, oh, in the 60s? Oh, okay, darn, we should have got those. Or somebody should have got those. So 2018 comes along, uh, and they, oh, the other fun thing about the 2013 book was I was going to be working on that in January, and two or three weeks before I was going to be, like, doing this in three months, (laughs) Uh, you know, overseeing artists and coming up with all this detail, and the publishers, bless their hearts, had no idea what anal Star Trek detail looked like when we got into this. And I'm going to take a breath because I took over the show, guys. Sorry. No, that's good. (laughs) No, that's perfect. You answered all of our questions. I mean, but I didn't even know that TOS had missing pieces to it. So now we did that. So you're going back to the 60s and then to now with Discovery. So we got the... Which are really only 10 years apart on another paradigm. So, you know. Well, that's that's true. You're it's in true. the same era. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this means you're going to have to do it again after season two. I don't know if it's... <laughs> we'll see. They may let a little more time accumulate. Well, Discovery and Hashtag Picard Show and uh, Lower Decks, which, uh, you know, I, a lot of people have question marks about that. But I think I'm really hopeful that Mike is enough, Mike McMahon is, uh, is enough of a fan that whatever the tone of the show is... Everything else will be like lockstep, you know, anal cannon. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that. So, yeah. so we'll, so. but we'll see. We'll see. But I just think there's going to be a lot more fertile. There's going to be a lot of fertile stuff to cover. I'm thinking of the animated series. Is any of that in stellar cartography, or is it just from the live action stuff? Oh yeah, no. There's a lot. There's some things that aren't, but there are a lot of pieces are. One thing also <laughs> we did was I just went for it. Every starbase ever mentioned in any format, including the animated, is is in. There are some animated references in. Some of them are a little flaky, um, uh, you know, 
apologies to Aaron Harvey there, but uh, I don't mean that in a in a judgmental way. I mean scientifically getting to fit with story points and science is a little eh. But there are some that are there are some that well, are. Well, I I gotta ask just for my own curiosity's sake. The maps they're absolutely gorgeous. Um, you mentioned some of the artists that did those. Uh, I'm I'm just actually curious. What was used to make those? Was that just like Photoshop? type stuff or what was their process is there some hand-painted stuff what's going on there because they're beautiful Allie has her process and you can look at her art and she just does those names so you know i don't think it's any shortcutted uh process it's, that's her bread and butter is doing those amazing kind of textured nebulous backgrounds yeah I've, I've got the ships of the line calendar on my wall right now and this month has some of her work in the background it's she's, gorgeous she's all over she even did a couple of little things for continues at one somewhere along the way i forget what exactly what some layer in a effect shot or as a background piece or a graphic or something but no she's got she's got a all kinds of you know and not star trek too also she does a lot of space art and space fantasy you know but she, or she's a piece of it if she's not the whole the whole thing no she's awesome they all they were all so great to work with what was funny was in 2013 they all were trying to hurry they thought they'd get a jump and rushed in and started working with maps and they all accidentally got into the STO stuff where they've got like the outer fringe, you know, there's a whole other level uh, outer ring of places. We were like, no, because we were keeping it to aired cannon. So we had like, well, this wound up taking more time because I had to tell them what all to strip off and what we were coming, we were cutting our frame back to. But, uh, but yeah, they know their stuff and it, it turns. What was funny though was uh, like doing the cultures like Klingons and Romans, you would think after, you know, 50, almost 50 years then that there would be some, oh, Klingon obviously is all over the place. But I remember like valiantly looking online for Romulan and Cardassian graphic, and Cardassian graphics are kind of there, but when you talk about specific things like Cardassian maps, we kind of had battle maps a little bit, but they kind of were very thin because the guys were just, you know, Mike and, and, and Doug were just slapping them up and not slapping them out, but I mean, they were having on a weekly schedule. Mm-hmm. And um, and and Romulan, it's like oh my god, forget it. And but we were coming up with you know icon iconogra- iconography. How do you say that? Uh, and the artists were, but I was trying to help them and point them to places. And what's funny was like the last second we were just going to make up Romulan stuff, and then I went, wait a minute, the rug, the rug in Nemesis. And I remembered Rick Sternbach's oh. big star map, and so the icons on the Romulan map are the icons for Federation and Romulus planets that you barely saw but we had i had the original artwork file so i was like able to grab that and so that's what's so but you know it's like a it's it's just you're pulling so much stuff from all over the places you know the stuff you think about the kinds of things you have to like how does the delphic expanse work but then you get in the nitty-gritty and it gets into that kind of a level too which is fun but then the artists are just you know making making sense of all and then to do the little battle maps on things and yes i picked the battles According to Dave Goodman's version of the Romulan War, not the pocketbook authors. I know people have given us flack about that. It was a choice. Everybody told me, including CBS, Larry, just make a decision. I thought maybe in the long term I should go with the company that was the same companies. So it's I probably a good bet. <laughs> now I don't know. Maybe it should have been the other way. It, you know, if we ever uh, get something, you can't on film, win. You can't. Win. Yeah, you can't win. Yeah. Well, the true will be when the final. We finally get a damn Romulan War series or movie. Then we'll have aired canon. We can all go to that. But for right now, yeah, there's a there's a majority opinion, and then whoever actually whoever actually remembers that from 
David's incredible book. Well, some of your maps really are canon now because we saw a map on Discovery. Yeah, that was, I fell off yeah. my chair. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Our friend John Van Sitters had slid so much, uh, you know, background, non, non, nonfiction material to all the art departments because they're in Toronto. It's not like they're just across town in LA, unfortunately. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Now, there's one funky thing, and somebody's already caught me on it. We saw it, where I guess, I don't know if they were trying to avoid the whole alpha quadrant powers confusion or what, which I answered, by the way, in the, you know, the alpha quadrant powers, you know, first said that phrase, uh, the founders, the dominion. Didn't know that. Yes. Now, it got picked up and other people used it because human people were writing the damn show, but. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, my whole, my whole ex explanation there was that the phrase... Okay, you know, the founders, the Dominions, their Gamma Carter perspective was everything for them comes through the wormhole. The wormhole is sitting off Bajor and Cardassia. That's Alpha Quadrant. So to them, everything they've encountered, they technically, they're smart enough to know what the cartography is of the people they're dealing with. But yeah. in, in common usage, their thing revolves around the opening of the wormhole in the Alpha Quadrant. So everybody they encounter is like, that's where the phrase originated, Alpha Quadrant yeah. Powers, even though makes, Klingons and Romulans. That makes sense. <laughs> Mike designed Klingons and Romulans. Because the definition of the, of the meridian, it's like a clock face, and the 12 to 6 o'clock line through the center of the galaxy is just drawn on Saul, on, on our sun, just like who decided the time zones around the world. Well, the Brits were the biggest science country, and damn it, it's going to be our observatory at Greenwich, England. So the Greenwich Mean Time, you know, so we get to draw the line. So that's, you know. Yeah, the Dominion has their own time zones. They don't match ours. Or they're whatever. all, you know, they're, yeah. It's like that. They're gamma, gamma-fied. <laughs> <laughs> they come up out of the tunnel on the other side and they don't know where the hell they are. But uh, that graphic we were talking about on Discovery, someone looked like somebody had taken the alpha-beta line quadrant line and just like moved it over a little bit so that Vulcan and Andor and everything were like all in the alpha quadrant and I was like well that's like taking the equator and saying it would be neater if the equator like ran along the Rio Grande or something and everybody that spoke Spanish was south of the equator so we're just gonna move the equator I was like well then it doesn't kind of have its meaning anymore <laughs> you know the midpoint doesn't make any sense because if you move if you wanted to move if you wanted to redo that, then it would be it would be a radius that comes out of the galactic center. So it would be, you know, what I'm saying. It gets it gets complicated. But where where can people get the newest edition of Stellar Cartography? Uh, it's everywhere. It's uh, Amazon. Uh, the the brick and mortar places have it too. It's probably cheaper through Amazon, but or you could come to my website at LarryMitchell.com, go to my store, and use my link, and I might get forty seven cents out of it. But um, there's that. But yeah, it's everywhere. It's pretty universal. Just make sure, as I was telling people all through summer, uh, get the box because they're still selling the original 2013, which was very green. It's a little bit different. The big thing is get the Pepto-Bismol purple nebula on the front. Yeah, it's in the upper left corner, upper left quadrant of the cover. That's what they say. <laughs> it's kind of uh, it's kind of like sub-Dominion-ish here if you made this into a – because that would be the Gamma Quadrant and then – yeah. The other huge improvement, two things. One, the Klingon was letter for letter done on the, the all Klingon map, which was very cool, in the 2013 edition, did not make I wasn't responsible. I put the English, gave that to them. And then the translation to Klingon was done by somebody in their office, just letter for letter, wasn't the cleanest, best match. 
and a uh, one of the major Klingon speaker translators in the world today, on Sol 3 today, <laughs> a guy from Europe named Levin Litauer, who was also the guy who, we didn't know this so much in the States, but in Netflix land on Discovery, your your byline, your captions options included a Klingonese. He's the one that did all the captioning in Klingon for Netflix. But we had kind of known each other, never met face to face. But anyway, I asked him and he fixed all the Klingon existing as well as made sure the new Klingon was uh, was correct on the all Klingon map. So yay, yay on that as well. But the most important new thing about the new edition is my name is on the front now. So so it's not 100% like, oh, look, it's totally new. There's four or five or six of the charts, the big map 10, the alpha, the beta, the Klingon, um, and one more have all been updated with everything new. And some of the stuff, yeah, is all wedged and fitted in there and fits right along in. Everything from Discovery there is except for, um, uh, which I was going to call Kelpia. And they took that out because, A, it wasn't going to be called Kelpia. And they wanted to uh, have the say on where it, where it was actually located, and it was, and we our deadline was too early for the short treks that's coming up next week. So, I mean, we didn't even know the short trek when I was working on this. We didn't even know there were short treks in the works. So, well, where can people find you online? You know, I'm I'm a member of Portal Forty Seven. I didn't know if you knew that. So, you know, <laughs> when there's a when there's a party going on, you're you're there. A lot. That's when I'm always there on parties. Yeah, you are. Well, you know, LarryNemichek.com, there is always the hub. But yes, Portal47.net is there. My Twitter is at LarryNemichek, and LarryNemichek's Trekland is the Facebook hub with a page for the Connor Wrath and a page for Portal47. And I have a, I have a curated small group for background and canon people uh, called uh, Portal47 Observation Lounge, which a lot of people don't know about. I'm in that, too. Yes, you are. When when there's a party, <laughs> when there's a party. But that's been kind of a thin a thin space. But yeah, that's it. Oh, and I have an Instagram. Um, I have an Instagram that's Larry Nimichek's Trekland too. And every Tuesday, of course, is the Trek Files podcast from Roddenberry's Network that you all carry on the Trek FM feed. And uh, Tuesday live at one p.m. Pacific. You figure your time zone from Meridian Greenwich or Sol Three. Uh, is Trekland Tuesdays Live that I do for about 30 minutes. Very cool. Thanks so much. It was really great to to get a look at the new version of this and to have you on to talk about it. Thanks for having me on. I just, boy, I just happened to be walking by your door. Talk about a coincidence. Uh, All right. Well, have a good one. Thanks for coming. Of course. Thank you so much and Trek well. Thanks a lot. Before we move on to the feature about uh, IKS Gorkon, uh, honor bound. We're going to look at a past episode that we did. It was episode number 249, and it was about the Lost Scenes book, the TOS Lost Scenes book. And that episode title was A Fun Labor of Love. And we want to look at the Babel Conference comments in Facebook about this episode. So, uh, Dan, what's the first comment that we have here that we want to mention? Well, first of all, Christopher Baca echoes, I think, a lot of what we thought and talked about when he says it was a great book and would love to see a volume two, uh, which is great because, as the authors said, there are lots of material that they weren't able to include in this uh, edition. So maybe there could be a volume two out there. I'd love to see that for sure. Okay, and then we have Joe 
Crabtree Saparito, he puts a IMDb link to Transformers the movie. And when we click on it, we are now verified that Leonard Nimoy was a voice talent used in that movie. So Leonard Nimoy was a Transformer. He was Gavatron. Yeah, which uh, I, I thought he was Optimus Prime. I've, I've never seen the movie. I was mistaken about that. But Justin Ozer replies to that, that he also did the voice of Sentinel Prime in 2011's Transformers Dark of the Moon. So a uh, nice little homage and bringing Leonard Nimoy back there as well. Well, and then later on in the comments, Justin did make a comment that he enjoyed the interview and he had no idea that when they got toward the end of the reel, R-E-E-L, reel, and uh, that they didn't have enough to film a scene that they would just let the camera run and that would end up filming behind the scenes stuff. So he's glad this kind of thing is preserved. And yeah, that's really cool because nowadays they specially shoot all these special features, but it's really just kind of by chance that we get a lot of this behind the scenes stuff from the original series. Uh, Christopher Baca comments again. Um, Another thing that came up in the interview that he so wants the motion picture book. They talked about maybe doing a similar book for Star Trek, the motion picture and mentions that we need content for next year's 40th anniversary. So next year is the 40th anniversary of Star Trek, the motion picture. And uh, that would be really cool to get a book like this tying into that. I would so much love that book. <laughs> I so want that to happen. That would be awesome. Definitely. <laughs> we also posted a picture of the doomsday machine uh, being filmed on blue screen. And uh, he says real or fake. And I had replied fake. <laughs> yeah. I think if you look at this carefully, it's uh, it's from a different image and that stand is holding a different model. I, I don't know if it's holding the enterprise or another model, but somebody's, um, <laughs> photoshopped in the doomsday machine from the episode uh there so it looks pretty cool but unfortunately yeah there is no behind the scenes footage of the doomsday machine out there so this is unfortunately fake but it's a very cool fake <laughs> it is at first i was like oh my gosh there actually is an image and i was like wait a second that's not it <laughs> that's that's fake yeah <laughs> it's all fake <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you guys all so much for your comments. We really appreciate it uh, and keep them coming. We'll keep doing this where we review the comments on the Babel conference post for the episode two episodes later. So uh, yeah, keep them coming. We love to hear from you. Okay, everyone. Now we're into our feature today. And with us to help us with our feature, once again, talking about the IKS Gorkon books, we have Justin Ozer from Earl Grey. Hey, Justin, how you doing? Oh, good. Great to be here talking about this novel. I mean, we talked about the first one, so you got to have me back for the second one, right? That's right. It's like you're inducted into the Klingon Hall of Fame of books. Yeah. And this is a big milestone for me. Do you know why? Why is that? I do know why, actually. You do know why, you but you're going to play along. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> why is that, Justin? Why is this a milestone for you? Well, this novel we'll talk about today is my 200th Trek novel that I've read since I read my first one back in August 2014. Wow. So Very cool. Congratulations. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> yes, that's Thank a you. good chunk of That's them. a huge yeah. accomplishment. I only have like 600 to go to read them all. So <laughs> And more on the way. I, I wish you luck. <laughs> And more coming. I know it'll set me back, but it'll be worth it. Awesome. Yes. 
Now that really is awesome. I th- I mean that's five years, two hundred Star Trek novels. Four years. Four years. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, considering the fact that I think I'm I don't know where I am, maybe mid three hundreds, and I started in nineteen ninety. <laughs> so you have to pick up the pace. <laughs> yeah, you're doing much better. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've become a little obsessed with it. I kind of dropped everything. I had been reading, and I've pretty much only been reading Star Trek novels since, about one a week. Well, I do know one that you read recently, and it's the one we're going to talk about. And it's not Homeward Bound. It's not about dogs and cats. (laughs) (laughs) It's about Klingons, and it's called Honor Bound. Now, I just have to wonder if um, Keith DeCandido called it Honor Bound because he was thinking of Homeward Bound. Do you think there's any connection there? I'd say almost certainly Very unlikely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's great is he's going to be on an upcoming episode, so we can ask him that if we want to. But, (laughs) you know, we want him to respect us, so we won't ask him that. But anyway, so coming from the first IKS Gorkon book into this one, I just ask you guys for your initial reactions. Do you think this book... um, really served well as a sequel to the first one for me personally i have to say i think so i liked that uh it wasn't just a story that had kind of been split in half in part one and part two it each novel really tells its own story and the second one i think really builds well upon the story we got in a good day to die the first book yeah i mean i think it's a good sequel and i think you're right dan i mean it is quite a different story because what was going on in the first one really had to do with all these competitions and what what would happen on the planet. And this one was a lot more action-packed and about some some different issues and I think focusing a little bit more on some different characters. So, yeah, I thought it was a really good sequel and, you know, followed up well on what was what had been built on before but was launching into something different. Yeah, I think it followed up really well to that first book. Um, I think the two really go well hand in hand. And it helps that's the same author. So I'm sure Keith DeCandido had a lot of this planned out. But let's talk about some of the topics that we put in the notes. And one of them is about the Order of the Batleth. And I'm going to actually read from a quote from the book how the Order of the Batleth... <laughs> <laughs> Elmer Fudd, huh? <laughs> the Order of the, of the Batwith. Uh. <laughs> the Order of the Batwith was found... No. Uh, no. The Order of the Batwith was, quote, founded after Kalis's ascension to Stovacor. The Order was tasked with rooting out dishonorable behavior and spreading the word of Kalis to the Klingon people. End of quote. So the order is where members were given a medallion with a hidden transceiver. Now, the High Council is unaware with what the Order of the Batleth group does and why it does what it does. Now, Clang, who is a member of the order, sent a message to the other members of the order and asked them to send ships to Santara to stop the stop Talix's forces. Now, it's interesting how the Order can work outside the High Council to hold true to Klingon honor. It's almost like a prime directive, in a sense. But it's sort of also like a Klingon Section 31 that isn't so much a secret. So, 
that was kind of my impression when I was thinking about the Order of the Batleth. What did you guys think, Justin? Well, I guess I didn't think about it much about the High Council being unaware of it, but it, but it seems like the way that they talk about it, it's this thing that's been around for a long time. They said it's founded by Lady Lucara, who I think was Kalis's wife, I mean, you know, hundreds or a thousand years ago or something like that. And it's kind of it seems like it's fallen out of favor or it's not really used as much as kind of just a ceremonial thing. But then in the first book, you had Martok talking to these uh, people who are being inducted and saying, you know, we're going to return it to its original purpose. And, you know, if there's something that's happening that, that needs, I guess, you know, people in this order to set it right, then you shouldn't hesitate to do that. And Clagg kind of takes him up on that. It, um, yeah, I don't know about something like Section 31. It's it because, and I don't know if there's really a, a good comparison within the Federation for something like this, but it, it almost seems like not quite a secret society, but but something like that, like Masons or something like we're going to stick together and do, th- I don't really know that much about Masons. What am I saying? But I mean, it just seems like something where a lot of people outside might not know what they really do, but it has a certain purpose to it. Yeah, I I felt much the same way. Again, I I wouldn't say Section 31 because, you know, this is a group that's kind of all about Klingon honor and that sort of thing. Um, I I kind of had in mind, and again, like you, this is something I don't know a lot about, but thinking something like the Knights Templar or something like that, where they're this ancient group that have this mandate to kind of, you know, uh, in this case, I guess, spread the word of Kalis to the Klingon people kind of almost sounds like a religious, you know, uh, crusade group or something like that. But, uh, you know, I, I really thought this was an interesting concept and the fact that they operate kind of, you know, outside the purview of the government is interesting. And yeah, it's hard to think of a, a real world or a federation um, equivalent to it, but it's 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 a fascinating society for sure. I mean, the membership's bestowed by the chancellor, by Martok in this case, and it's kind of sanctioned by the head of the government, but they can work outside of it. So I don't really know of anything in the real world on Earth here that's like that. It seems pretty unusual. It's almost as though like the Knights of the Realm in uh, the UK, if they had some sort of secret thing that the rest of the <laughs> world doesn't know about. And the Queen, you know inducts them and and knights them but you know then they go off and you know sir patrick stewart leads his band of (laughs) knights off on some secret mission that we have no idea about i like it yeah i kind of want to write that novel now (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's almost like a secret service in a sense like yeah i don't know and it's not even quite like a section 31 it's just the idea of me mentioning section 31 is just the fact that it's it's like this group that no one's really that aware of or why they do what they do. But yeah, they're working outside of things, but for the benefit of the Klingon Empire. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it, it tells you something about, I mean, maybe it more tells you something about people taking it, what Martok said seriously, that anybody responds to this, right? Because it's a big risk. He's basically saying in the first book, like, this general wants me to do something dishonorable. Join me. You know, and it could turn out really badly for the people that show up. So it's kind of amazing that anybody shows up, let alone what five ships or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because all it took was Clang to say, "Hey, I'm calling everyone based on the order," and they're they're jumping at it. 
And I mean, some of them have this medallion. Some of them don't. That's just put away. It's in dust balls. And it's like, wow, we haven't done this before. And it was interesting because actually, um, Keith DeCanado put how different people reacted to it. And I thought it was interesting. He put in there, there was this one farmer who was like, you know, I I think he like lost a limb in the Dominion War or something. It's like, I'm done with that. Sorry. <laughs> right. So there were, I mean, there must be a lot of people and only a certain number responded and some were like, ah, whatever, <laughs> I'm not going to do this. Well, it's like the secret society of British Knights. You know, I, I do wonder how many mm-hmm. missions Elton John would go on, for example. <laughs> okay. Well, that's interesting about the order of the Batleth. One of the characters in here, I have to admit, when I read this novel, I thought this character, Wool, uh, she was very interesting to me. But then when I look back at it, she wasn't quite as interesting as I thought she was. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds kind of odd. But she's a leader of the 15th Squad. And so she's kind of acting almost like a lead character in this book. And her squad includes many members like... Uh, Jajoth, Barris, and Trant. And Wool was banished from the house of Jorn, and then she later joined the Klingon Defense Force, and then she ended up on the IKS Gorkon. Now, there's a pr- there's another novel, I think it's The Burning House or something, where I think there's more backstory on her. Hmm. Oh, you mean one we haven't gotten to yet? One that's not even part of the IKS Gorkon series, I found out. Uh, is it part of the Brave and the Bold? No, not even that. Hmm. What are you talking about then? If it's not part of, I think the I thought the Gorkon only appeared in Diplomatic Implausibility, the Brave and the Bold book two, and the four Gorkon novels. It's something else. There is something else. Yes, my child. There is something else. <laughs> yes, Kai. <laughs> yes, the Burning House is a. Uh, Klingon Empire. Oh yeah, yeah, that's, that's part of the four book series. They re, they read the novel. They just they changed the name to Klingon Empire because they they oh, kind of intended right. to go in different directions, and then it ended with that book. Sadly. Okay, so we're going to get more about Wool later. Okay. Oh, okay. oh darn! Now I've spoiled it for myself because I read ahead on some things about her. But anyway, <laughs> I just found her an interesting character, and I think, and not just about her, but the whole fifteenth squad. Because Morris and Trant are demoted, they're in a higher squad, and they get demoted mm-hmm. to fill two empty positions in the 15th squad. And I thought there was a really great um, dynamic between these characters, as Wool is someone who has been banished from her house, yet here she is acting as a leader, and then she gives, they're given... And then they give her even more leadership responsibilities mm-hmm. during this yeah. this fight. I just was curious what you guys thought of her in the 15th squad. I mean, I, I think I said probably said this on the previous episode. She was one of my favorite characters in the first book. I think there are some great things for her in this book, but I felt like she wasn't as much of a focus in this one. But what we did see, I really liked. Yeah, and she was kind of going up in this responsibility. She became the leader of a squad in the first book. And then she was leading these five different squads in, the, in this battle, and she did a really great job. I just find it find her to be a really great character, and I think it is interesting. I think she's not the only one that we see that doesn't have a house that she's associated with or something like that and can still serve in the defense forces, which I think is great. So I, I, I like her character, although I think we didn't see quite as much in this novel. Yeah, I feel the same way. I, I enjoyed her character in this one. 
Uh, she does get some cool moments in this book too, which, you know, we don't quite want to get into big spoilers yet, but she plays a pretty pivotal role in the final ground battle in the book and makes some decisions that kind of turn the tide of that a bit. And uh, then, of course, there's other stuff with her <laughs> that we'll get to that I really can't say anything about uh, without spoiling lots yet. So. Yeah, and we don't want to really spoil it. And I think those are the aspects of the of her character that I really found interesting once we get to that later in the book. So this is a great teaser for everyone to stick around to find out what wool we have. <laughs> We're not going to pull the wool over your eyes. No, we'll remove the wool from your eyes then. <laughs> Uh, that was funnier in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it was. <laughs> it, it almost had to have been, right? <laughs> oh, woolies me. Okay, so then we have Clang, who really is the star, because uh, he's the captain of the Gorkon. And in many ways, he is the hero of this novel, and he fights very well, and he goes against a superior to do what he thinks is right, and he did exceptionally well on a no-win scenario test on Rua Pente. Now, is Clang a Klingon version of Kirk? Well, okay, so I was the one that put this on the outline, so maybe I'll defend that. <laughs> I mean, it, it really struck me when his brother, Dorek, was going into detail about this training that they have where they're dropped onto Rua Pente in the middle of nowhere, no food, no water, and they're told that they have to make it to this outpost on the North Pole. And it's basically a no-win scenario. Like, nobody's ever done it. There's no base that exists in the North <laughs> Pole, so it's like the definition of you can't win. And yet, within this, Clagg does some really ingenious stuff to get past this thin ice that everybody else... I was trying to picture it. He's, like, using these pieces of ice to make a raft and, like, to row himself across it or something. But, I mean, eventually, no nobody really makes it, but he makes it really far. And I think they say, usually, you know, when they're beamed up in order to save their lives because otherwise everyone would die there um that usually the warriors feel bad like that they they couldn't do it but he's like send me back there i can do it so it just really struck me i'm like this is the kobayashi maru for the klingon so how do you do in this no-win scenario so it made me think like is clag like a klingon version of kirk he's very much a hero you know he's a captain of of this vessel he fights really well he's willing to go against his superiors if necessary so that really struck me, and I wondered if you guys thought that that was correct or if I'm reading too much into it. I really like this, and it's something that I hadn't directly thought, uh, especially the the uh, the Brurapenthe test as a Kobayashi Maru, and the fact that Clagg really has this moral code that he follows and goes against his superiors, it really does scream Kirk. I mean, if you watch the original series, Kirk is generally a very by-the-book officer who, you know, bends the prime directive a few times, but you watch the movies, he definitely goes up against, you know, the Federation when he yeah. feels something and is right. And steals in, the Enterprise when he has to, exactly, right? Exactly, <laughs> yeah. And Clegg, I think, uh, if Clegg had grown up in the Federation, he would have idolized Kirk, I think, because, yeah, he does seem to have a lot of the same character qualities that he does. I really like that. It was really good uh, comparison. There. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I mean, and, and also within this, I mean, he is taking this really huge risk with, with what he's doing, with what uh, Clegg is doing. He's like, 
I'm going to bring these order members, but we could all get crushed and just be destroyed and totally dishonored. But he's still willing to do it, just like Kirk takes big risks. He needed to do the risk is our business speech, but in Klingon. You know what? I forgot to mention it last time, but in book one, there is a character that says risk is our business, a Klingon yes. character. Did you notice that? I remember that? that, yeah. There is. It, it wasn't Clag. It was somebody else. Maybe it was Cornyn or something else. But I was like, he put risk is our business in a Klingon's <laughs> mouth. Wow. Oh, yeah, so maybe that was that. foreshadowing. You know, I didn't think of <laughs> Clang as like a Kirk character, but I can see some of that. I, he, I mean, he's not the same, but he's like if Kirk was a Klingon, right? Kirk was a Through Kling- this well, prism of honor. We saw Kirk as a Klingon in the IDW comics. Um, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I can see some of that. I think it gets back to what I was saying in the previous episode, the other, uh, the first book, where there are some aspects of this that reminded me of the Enterprise or the crew of the Enterprise. And I wasn't necessarily thinking of Clang as Kirk, but I can definitely see that. I mean, they're both heroic characters. He definitely stands for the ideals and the best ideals of the Klingon Empire. He is uh, negotiating with the world based on the rules of the Empire, which are almost like the Order is almost protecting like a prime directive for them in a sense which I could see Kirk doing. So, yeah, I, I guess the only thing I'm hesitant on is what you said earlier about him calling the order to come help. It just makes me wonder if Kirk would call like for help or he would try to do it on his own. And by the way, Klang, Klang doesn't kiss anyone, so that is not a Kirk quality there. <laughs> I'm- Okay, I don't. I don't know if I quite <laughs> buy parts of your argument, but, but uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there there are definitely things that are different. I mean, he's so I see him reflected kind of through the Klingon prism. Like if Kirk had grown up in that society, who would he be? Maybe he would be this kind of person. And calling for help in this situation is kind of it's absolutely necessary because there's a whole fleet that's coming up against him, right? I'm trying to think like on screen when you see Kirk against like a whole fleet. I don't think you do, partly because they wouldn't have been able to afford that. But uh, I think this is a different situation. In that kind of situation, Kirk might have called on others if there was a whole fleet up against him instead of one or two ships. Yeah, I think there's a lot to kind of compare the two characters. And yeah, like Bruce said, it's not a one-to-one absolute comparison, but there's a lot of qualities there that I think these two characters share. And it's the kind of hero that I think a Klingon centric series needs. You want more of Mm -hmm. a Kirk than a Picard. Like this is, you know, the Klingon empire very much not the Federation, you know? So I think this kind of strong character who uh, flies in the face of maybe what you would expect a, a hero character to be like, is important and I think works really well. Well, and of course, the thing that's really interesting about it, we talked about it in the previous episode also, like the point here is conquest, right? So he's framed as this really honorable character, but you're really rooting for him to conquer the planet, right? Which is so different. And I mean, if, if it was a strict interpretation of like the prime director for the Federation, they would just leave this planet alone. right? They wouldn't even go there. But for the Klingons, they don't care about that. They're like, hey, ripe for conquest. Let's do it. But it's interesting that in doing that, they discover something they didn't think they would find. So I just realized something that kind of flies in the face of the Clegg as Kirk thing. 
that said, I think Picard in the movies is more like Kirk than Picard in the series is. But this strikes me as kind of an inverse Star Trek insurrection where the Federation wants to conquer this planet and move these people and claim this for themselves. And Picard leads the Baku in a rebellion to, you know, save their planet. So, you know, in that way, this is kind of like, you know, Clegg is Picard in insurrection who is kind of like Kirk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm glad you mentioned that too, Dan, because I was going to ask, ask Justin why Kirk and not any of the other captains. But as you're mentioning, there, because Dan, of the Kobayashi Maru reference, reference because it, okay. it seems strongly like the Kobayashi Maru. And that's the first time that I was like, this sounds like Kirk. That's the only reason that at that point the light bulb went on. Cause it could have been, you know, as someone, some other captain, but th- th- that that I think particularly was a strong indicator. And I was wondering if Keith DeCandido was actually trying to make that comparison by putting in this no-win scenario because Clegg does not like no-win scenarios, right? Whether it's in this training mission or it's dealing with this planet of Santara, he is not going to accept that there's this no-win scenario like, okay, either we lose our honor or we get crushed. No, we're going to keep our honor and we're going to be victorious, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So, that, th- so that's how I thought it was also more like Kirk and just not believing in the no-win scenario. So there's a lot of intrigue and in switching sides in this book and the characters who for quite some time don't know other characters' true intentions. Now, was this surprising or does it fit into a larger trend of what we saw in the TNG era, particularly with the Duras family? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a... When I first was reading this, I was like, oh, those treacherous, honorless people with... I'm sure they have, you know, double agents and all this kind of stuff. But Clegg kind of does the same thing because he's got his person on the inside as well, who's a member of the Order of the Batleth, who switches sides. And uh, I guess we should probably say we're getting into spoilers at this point, I suppose, because we're getting into (laughs) some specifics of the story. But yeah, there is a lot of that kind of duplicity And, you know, at first I wanted to say it's just these, you know, people under General Talak who are using uh, honorless kind of tactics and that sort of thing. But it really is both sides kind of using what they have to their advantage. And I mean, as Worf says in The Way of the Warrior to a Klingon, there's nothing more honorable than victory. So, you know, sometimes I guess you're you're ideals can be kind of shifted a little bit if it means getting an edge in a battle in an honorable cause. I feel like I'm being a Klingon lawyer here. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what it makes me think of? I mean, because this, these novels are really supposed to be from the inside. They're pretty much all about Klingons. Yeah, Worf's in here a little bit here and there, but there's no Starfleet characters. You don't really see any representative of the Federation. This is really from the inside. So I wonder if what's being said here is that to the outside world, the Klingons like to say that, you know, this deception you see and intrigue is is just an exception. Like, oh, there's those dishonorable Duras family and all of that. But maybe when they're just dealing among themselves, that's just what happens. And that's what's always happened. I mean, they even have uh, like an intelligence agency, Imperial Intelligence, that everyone knows they have at least one or two agents on every ship. So... That tells me that it's kind of ingrained as part of their culture, but they don't like to reveal that to outsiders. I just think of them as a big dysfunctional family. 
I, you know, <laughs> I mean, the Federation isn't perfect either, but in this case, I don't really feel like the Klingon Empire has their act together. I mean, some perceive the the way the Klingon ways differently than others, and I think they all worship, in a sense, Kalis, but I think they interpret it in different ways. And I think what they want to gain overshadows what their true honorable intentions should be. You know, we see a character in here, Huss, and she is part of Talek's fleet. But we find out later that she's either a member of the Order or we also know that she had been pretty tight with Klang uh, and, and worked with him before. And she switched sides on yeah. Talek. And there was a there was some of that switching sides and there's talking about houses and it reminds me of Discovery and the houses aren't united. And here we are in the 24th century and things still don't seem united. Everybody's working in different directions and it's all because they're honorable and they're all Klingons, but they have a different philosophy of what that is. I mean, it, it felt to me a lot of times in the TNG era that the Klingon Empire was just like on the verge of fracturing apart. I mean, you do actually see a Klingon war in what is it, season four into five, but it always seemed like there was just something waiting to fracture it apart. And I mean, throughout TNG with all the dealings with the Duras and all that, you see all of this corruption that the council accepts and the chancellor accepts and all of this stuff. So I think we already knew from what we saw in TNG that there was kind of a lot of that, but this just really heightened it. And, and some, it was kind of surprising to see some of it. Like, like you were saying with, with Huss, you know, it seemed like she was on the side of, of Talek, but Clagg had her kind of playing that role so that she could flip at the right time, which is, sounds very Romulan, you know? So it's, it's, it's really interesting to see. And it, I think it makes sense. It's probably more realistic that they would use whatever advantage they want in the name of what they think is honorable. And one of the right? members of the 15th squad, I can't remember which one said it, was saying, you know, this isn't right. Klingons shouldn't be fighting Klingons. And then it took someone else to say, I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, that's the way things have always <laughs> that's been. That's what we do. <laughs> right. I, mean, I fought a guy yesterday. I mean, that's what we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't wait until they met aliens to start fighting. They've been fighting each other for years. Mm -hmm. I mean, and they assassinate their superiors to move up. I mean... How much more Klingon on Klingon fighting can you get, yeah. right? It almost makes you think that they want that. You know, like if there was peace among the Klingon Empire, I think they would freak out about that and say, this is wrong. We need to be fighting each other. They, they, I think they don't want that. And they feel like there's something wrong if there aren't new places to conquer, right? They always want a fight to be in, it seems mm -hmm. like. And I mean, like, their entire belief system is based around that. You can't get into Klingon heaven unless you die honorably and to them that means in the middle of a fight fighting for your honor you know so yeah and i feel like in this book we get kind of the clash of a bunch of different klingon ideologies so this there's this idea of klingon honor which we've established means different things to different klingons and there's also the idea of like klingon supremacy over all other life forms and clag kind of sees the, the children of Santara as almost their equals, you know, these honorable warriors who fight for a lot of the same reasons the Klingons do. And the general just can't accept that. No, they're Jegpu, we, we take them over. Like, what are you doing? This is stupid. Roll over them. A word given to them doesn't mean anything. So it's these, you know, two ideas that are kind of coming to a head and clashing here, which is 
really the basis of what this is all about. It, it almost seems like the clash of different political ideologies, almost like they have informal like political parties mm. that see things differently in a way. I mean, it's not as formally organized, it seems, but it does seem like a clash in ideology and interpretation, like honor means this. No, honor means this. You know, it's just, I mean, it's just like in, in present day politics where it's like the right thing for the government to to do is this. No, the right thing for the government to do is this, you know, and, and there are these fights about what's moral and on different sides, right? It's kind of similar, isn't it? Yeah, I was thinking of the British Parliament. That's what I was thinking earlier when we were talking about Klingons. I could just see them all in a room and they're all like going you imagine the Imagine the Klingon Parliament and what that would be like. <laughs> <laughs> Good thing they don't have one. Yeah. Okay, so well now the, the Santara end up willingly joining the Klingon Empire towards the end of the novel. So I'm glad we mentioned spoilers earlier because <laughs> we are hitting the end of the novel. But this seems very fitting because of their warrior culture, the respect they have for the Klingons who fought for the cause, and the protection it will give them from other spacefaring civilizations. However, what is in store for them in their future? We haven't seen non-Klingons serve as anything but servants in the Klingon with the Klingons. So, like, even in the Gorkin and Prometheus novels, where we see other species, they typically are servants or they're inferiors to them. Yeah. So, I mean, this was a question that came up in, in my mind, like, okay, what happens now? Because Clag's uh, been victorious in his cause, and they're going to be part of the Klingon Empire, and... I think even Martok has has respect for them. So does that mean they can serve on the Klingon defense force vessels or does it mean they could even be like the captain of a ship? I mean, like, does this possibly change things going forward? Is this really the first uh, species that the Klingons have come across where they've been able to get this much respect as equals? I, I just wondered about that question. That's the impression I came away with though but i don't know dan what do you think well i i don't think they're there yet i don't think they'll quite treat them as equals um i can see them using them as troops because they're such great fighters and that sort of thing uh my mind when i was considering this question because i was reading through the outline and kind of thinking through a lot of these and my mind went back to the fact that certain Klingons from certain families aren't allowed to join the defense force as officers because of where they're born and, you know, that they're not a highborn family or they're from the Kethololans or something like that. And, you know, eventually they can work their way up and that sort of thing. But there's still these old guard Klingons like Kor who will strike someone's name from an officer's list because they're not born to the right family. And I'm thinking like, a society that has that even in its very recent past isn't at the point that they're going to take even another species and elevate them to that level. So I think maybe joining as a common soldier like Martok did and eventually somehow working their way up through honorable deeds and that sort of thing, they could get there. But I think it's it's going to be something that like will require a lot of work on the part of someone like one of the children of Santara to take that path and a lot of open-mindedness on the part of Klingons that, you know, some of them certainly don't show very often. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, and I thought more about this question and the reason I put a reference to the Prometheus novels is I was reading the third one, which just came out. Um, but they, they're, this character has been there before and there is 
a character from a conquered species who serves as an ops officer on the bridge. And that takes place, what, like nine years after this one or something like that. So it just made me think like, can they make that kind of progress in a certain number of, of years? I mean, could it be if you project further into the future because of this experience that they might have different species serving as officers like you see in the Federation? I don't know. Yeah. And I, cer- I certainly think it's something that, um, you know, over, over a period of time, I'd love to see that. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, uh, it's been a long time since I've played it, but Star Trek online had that too, where there's Gorn and, um, other species serving as officers in the Klingon empire, uh, at least ones that you could create Klingon characters around kind of thing. So seeing that's like 30 years after this. So, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a neat idea and one that I think would make it pretty cool. You know, you see a Klingon ship on the view screen and, you know, the viewer snaps on and it's one of the children of Santara is commanding the ship. That's a pretty cool idea. That would blow my mind. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it it is. And, and like, I hadn't really thought about it much before, but I'm like, oh, when you see Klingon ships on screen, it's always a hundred percent Klingons that are serving there unless you have, you know, exchange officer like Riker. But but I di- and I didn't think about that. I mean, and you see something similar among some other civilizations too. Like on a Romulan ship, you're pretty much seeing Romulans, you know, on these ships. So it seems like the Federation can have all these different species, and for a lot of other, um, you know, empires and powers that they encounter, it's not like that. They really restrict who can serve. Yeah, I think until the Dominion, we never really got that on on screen Trek, where there's different species, and with the Dominion, they're all either genetically engineered or conquered species. But, you know, I, I feel like maybe television wise, it's just a a shorthand, right? I mean, it's a Klingon ship. There's going to be Klingons. And I think that's where something like the novels can, where they can have that time to kind of get more in depth into it. will show a bit more of that. And I, I think that's definitely a strength of the, of, of written Star Trek as opposed to television Star Trek. Yeah. I can see the creators of the, television star trek saying well if we put other species on the klingon ship it could be just too confusing for viewers that aren't that and familiar. it would cost extra for the extra makeup too right because if you have just 100 percent klingons it's like okay we have this stuff over here we use for klingon makeup we know how to do that or we've got some extra stuff we can put on but if there are other species it just just makes it a little more but does it seem costly. very klingon to have another species in command of their own fleet of their own ships I don't even know if that's keeping in, in character for them, right? No, it, it it really doesn't. And I think it it very much works with what you see see on screen. I think there's a good reason. I just hadn't really thought about it much until until this. And it made me think, oh, it'd be cool if there was, you know, a follow-up and 10 or 15 years later, some of the centaur are serving on Klingon ship or well, something. Well, I don't know about you guys, but I have not read ahead to the summaries of the future Gorkon novels. So I don't know if the Centaur... I, have, I haven't either. Yeah. So maybe that does play out in the future books. Maybe. Although I get the sense like this is the end of that Centaur story and you start with something else. But it would be cool to have a, a, a callback. Yeah. We'll, I get we'll the see. sense it is the end of the Centaur story. I'm with you on that. But I also feel that I think they would still address what the Centaur maybe are doing. That would be very cool. I will say, and I, I don't think this is a huge spoiler, it's literally just a name drop. Uh, the children of Santara are name dropped in A Time for War, A Time for Peace, which I'm in the middle of reading right now. Kind of uh-huh, cool. Okay. It's very minor, oh, really? so I'm not 
we don't really learn anything, but I was just like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And that takes place a couple of years after this one. Yeah. yeah and that's great because that's the book we're doing on the next episode. So that's And that's really the cool. next one I'm going to read after the one I'm reading now. <laughs> Perfect. <here. laughs> that's really cool. See, I love how these books are all connecting, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, and I think Keith DeCanada loves to connect different things in his novels. And I think that's great. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, I always love yeah. it. I was just on a memory beta dive today on all the times the USS Sujahara is mentioned. And they're all Keith DeCanada books. I was like, oh, that's neat. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's cool. That's really cool. Well, it's obvious that something is up with Kern Erotic. Now, that's... uh Worf's brother. You know, everything connects to Worf. Have you noticed that? Mm-hmm. It's the story Star of Worf, right? Star Trek is the right? story of Worf. One of these days, that will be the title of an episode. <laughs> yeah. Why not this one? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, Worf is, has a small role in this, but it's the story of Worf. <laughs> yes. Well, Rodick is, like, intermittently remembering things from his past. He doesn't seem to really connect to what who he used to be, but he was remembering himself being on a ship, which Kern was on the certain ship. And so things are starting to come back to him. So I would think this is going to play out in the next couple novels. Oh, I, I think, I think for sure. And, you know, I haven't read ahead. I don't know what happens. I don't think I've seen his character in, in other novels. So I wonder if one of them, there is going to be that revelation and I'll find out and I'll have to deal with the fallout. I think that would be really cool because I've always been kind of uncomfortable with where they left it in DS9. Like, oh, he just doesn't know who he is and uh, I'll just send him on his way. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like That always felt really weird. So, I, th- I thought it was great that he's in these novels that have the, the Gorkon. And yeah, I think those things are definitely being dropped. Like, I think the doctor's like, something a little unusual is going on here, but uh, who knows? <laughs> you know, it, it definitely seems intentional, doesn't mm-hmm. it? I love the name drop of the Hegta, which is the bird of prey that he commanded. And I, I it took me a couple paragraphs after it was mentioned to realize, because he said, you know, oh, on when I was on the Hegta, we did this and, and we should give that a try. Oh, okay, cool. And then there's a character that's like, there was something odd about what he just said, but I can't put my finger on it. And I'm like, what? <gasps> oh, because that's the bird of prey that he's commanding in Redemption Part 2 and Worf serving with him on that ship. See, I wouldn't have remembered that. I mean, they, they led you to that, but yeah. I wouldn't have known yeah. that. But yeah, it was it was just like, oh, that was clever how, you know, he doesn't. The author doesn't give it away there, but he just drops enough that, you know, something's going on. And as the novel goes on, these things happen more and more like he's in sick bay and demands to be released. I am the captain of this ship. Let me out of here or whatever. And she's like, fine, fine, fine. Go. And then he leaves and she's like, why did he say he was the captain of this ship? That's weird. Oh, well, <laughs> back to my novel. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I love that they're reading novels in this one. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and then an author has a confrontation with, and a duel with a dissatisfied reader. <laughs> I really <laughs> chuckled at that. See, I love little things like that that are just peeks into the rest of Klingon society. Like, And a Klingon author would totally oh, do that. absolutely. Like, you can imagine <laughs> a Klingon author at a book signing and somebody is dissatisfied <laughs> and pulls their knife and like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> <laughs> well, Keith's a candidate got that idea from watching Peter David at a convention once. So. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> I love it. 
So one of my favorite characters in here is Karak. I'm sorry, but she is just like my favorite. She's the engineer of the Gorkon. And uh, she fears for the safety of the young male heir to their house. I mean, she and this heir are like the only ones surviving of her house. She didn't even want to be uh, doing what she's doing. She didn't want to be part of the defense force. I mean, there's this backstory of how she's her father forced her into this. And I love that. You know, her father's passed away. She later finds out her mother now has passed away and she's now head of the house, which she really doesn't even want to be that. She doesn't want to be part of the defense force. And you know, she has to deal with this family servant in a sense, somebody who kind of helps keep the house together and leads things. And he's this old Klingon that she's basically just like wanting to just tell him off and say, you know, whatever, I'm going to do my own thing, but, you know, protect, uh, I guess it's her, what, her brother or her A nephew. nephew. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And she feels that um, Locor on the ship is making threats against him since she's trying to protect him and, and get this male servant to set up security guards and stuff. I, she's just a very fascinating character to me. There's a lot of dimensions to yeah. her. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, and and I think I've been fascinated with her because she appeared in the TNG episode Suspicions, even in that episode, like, oh, she's a Klingon scientist. And what is that like? And, and I've really liked the, the backstory that they gave her. She doesn't really want to be there, but she's going to do the best she can. But she's this really fierce character. It's it's because <laughs> I think at one point, Clagg is like, you know, I'm going to kill you <laughs> if you don't do these. And she's like, Come on, bring it on. <laughs> I'm doing the best I can, you know? So, I, I, I love her character. I, I did wonder, like, why is this guy, Lokor, who's the chief of security, making these threats? Like, what does that have to do with? Was I missing something? I feel like, and I could be totally wrong about this, I feel like she's a very good engineer and she's almost making herself too valuable and hmm. basically this guy knows that like as soon as this male heir comes of age and can join the defense force she's out of there and yeah so i i thought somehow that he had some kind of connection to her family and they were having him like keep a watch on her and make that she sure that she does what she's supposed to do for the family it or something i don't know way, though but it didn't really seem defined yeah, and a lot of all, the rest of her family seems dead except for the nephew. I don't know. I I couldn't. I I definitely think that's something they're going to come back to and see where that yeah, goes. Yeah, the to. rest of her family is dead. I mean, her mother was now the latest one, but uh, because she thought it was ironic that you know they were all into you know battle and such, and she's one of the few that has now survived. I feel like he's definitely using it to keep her on a leash, if nothing else. You know, to kind of just say, "I have this power over you." So stay in line and do your job kind of thing. And okay. like you say, though, I feel like there may be more to it. So this is why I put this in a section at the end called hanging threads, because I feel like obviously this story isn't done. There's there's things that are set up that are going to continue forward. And I feel like there might be some hidden motivation that we just don't know yet. Because it does seem like he's taking a very hands-on approach to this, more so than you'd expect. Okay, and now going back to Wool, she's in battle and she's fighting this one guy, this one other Klingon, and she kills him. And as he's dying, he says, Arel. And she, because of that, she realizes who he is. He is her long lost son. 
Mm-hmm. And so that adds some dramatic tension now to Wool, because then as the doctor, Brack, is uh, examining this body, because, I mean, typically, you know, you kill a Klingon, you leave him there, but she has now set it up, you know, oh, you know, we need to take this body back and examine it or do something with it or whatever. And the doctor's like, well, why would I even do this? And the doctor says, well, actually, I know why, because there's a crest on this dead Klingon that matches the crest that you have on yourself. And so she knows they're part of the same family and is going to take a DNA sample. So this is a hanging thread that I think is really going to play out maybe in a negative way with wool in the next book. Yeah, maybe. And I mean, this one, this surprised me a lot. I didn't see anything like this coming. Mm -hmm. And actually I was a little confused at first because you see it from this, guy the son's point of view and it's like i killed someone it seems like it's my mother and i'm like oh that's sad i wonder who that was and then i go back and it's like it's wool i'm like what (laughs) like i didn't expect that it was going to relate to to her so this was very surprising and and also i think one of the things it highlighted for me is how much of like a civil war this is you know that they're family members fighting against each other some of whom don't even know that they're family members and it just kind of because there's like a lot of battle and a lot of blood spilled in this, but it kind of heightened the tragedy and really personalized it. Like, because, like in a way, because this general has done this dishonorable thing, she had to kill her son, right? So, I mean, I blame Talek, but but uh, I mean, it, it's, it just really kind of heightens it. I mean, it was almost like a Greek tragic kind of moment, like unknowingly doing something to kill a family member. It was... It was quite sad. Yeah. Like you said, this was something that I didn't see coming at all either. And the thing is, once you once the revelation is made, you realize that it was very carefully telegraphed all the way through. Like the the backstory we get about Wool where she's talking about this, you know, child that she abandoned at some point, and then we come to this guy and he's talking about his family history. If you're paying very close attention, you should be able to like piece it together. But I totally didn't. And then it happened and I was like, oh my God, of course. Like it's it's brilliant. Like I that whole way that all plays out is so cool. It doesn't seem out of the blue that we're all of a sudden getting this guy's backstory, this unknown character. Yeah. And I remember yeah. thinking that's weird and just reading through it. And then afterwards being like, oh, I should have realized that. <laughs> yeah. But I thought that, that you were seeing this character for the first time in his backstory because it would relate to someone else or maybe it was just kind of like a slice of life kind of thing. Like because that thing I referred to with the farmer before, like receiving the summons, like that's not followed up on. It's just kind of showing you what happened and how someone reacted. That's, that's what point. I thought yeah, it was. Yeah. Just like set dressing kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah just like, things. oh, but Yeah. Good, good job, Keith to Canada. Yeah. That one totally caught me by surprise. He really did like, pull the wool over our eyes. <laughs> oh. And maybe even those bits of like backstory that we got earlier in the book kind of served to throw us mm. off a little bit. Like, that's oh, this I'm is wondering. just another, you know, that's yeah. really yeah. cool. I just, I love the way this book's put together. Well, I'm glad you love the way this book was put together. So, Dan, let me start with you. What are your final thoughts on this book? Okay, well... I really enjoyed this one. It's actually the only one of the IKS Gorkon series that I don't have in hard copy, which I'm really sad because that cover is gorgeous. I I really want this book. Um, I've not seen it in used bookstores yet, though. Oh, yeah. Justin's holding his up to the camera. I I, I ordered it online. (laughs) (laughs) I might just have to do that at some point. 
Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this one. It's a great follow up to book one. Like I said, you know, they're part one and two of the same story, but they're both very self-contained books with a beginning, middle and end and a full arc through them. Uh, some of the little touches I really like, uh, for example, the inclusion of Captain Cavada, who has a small role in the TNG episodes unification part one and part two. He's the Klingon captain that ferries Picard and data on his bird of prey to Romulus. Mm. Um, and I've always loved this guy because he's played by Steven root. Who's the guy that played, uh, the main nerdy guy in office space. <laughs> I can't remember. Oh, okay. The one who always, they, they took my stapler, that guy. Yeah. <laughs> And I just like, it, it blows my mind because I can't believe they're the same person. <laughs> so, you know, picturing him in this novel was a lot of fun. And he gets a really cool story himself. You know, he gets this nice little arc, which ends in his death, but it's a glorious death, you know. And I'm sure he's up in Stovacor now complaining about his stapler. But, you know, this <laughs> this novel is a lot of fun. And I, I think I have to give it, uh, I would say, four... Uh, buzzing order of the Batleth medallions, you know, like when you have that thing in your tables ready and it goes, which is how I pictured what they were doing when Clegg puts out the call to the order of the Batleth. (laughs) (laughs) Nice, 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 nice. (laughs) Justin, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed this one. Like at first I, I wasn't quite sure what I might think of it because for the first novel, one of the things that I liked about it is that it wasn't all about battle and blood and gore and all of that kind of stuff. It was a little bit different story with all the competitions. And it was clear in this one pretty early on, there was going to be a lot of action. There was going to be a lot of battles, a lot of blood spilled. But what I, I really liked was the further development of the the characters that that we've talked about. I mean, there's quite a bit of backstory for the different characters and it felt like a really kind of satisfying way to bring this thing to a conclusion. I mean, one thing I do have to say is that I very much saw where this thing was going pretty early on. Like, I I could very much tell, like, Clag's cause is going to win. The Centaur are going to willingly join the Federation. So, it wasn't surprising, but it was the right ending. So, I I just really enjoyed it uh, throughout. And, I mean, again... Here's a novel that's Klingon-centric that's about honor and conquest, and I really love it, and I'm rooting for these characters, so I think that's quite a feat. So, if I were to give it a rating, I would give it five missions of Elton John. No, that's awesome. And, you know, I've said on previous episodes when we've run... When we've read a book about Klingons, it's like, uh, I don't know if I'm going to get into this. But once again, I did. I really enjoyed it. And uh, surprisingly... I would be very open to reading more Klingon-centric books like this. I mean, I wouldn't want to be too many of them, but I mean, I really do enjoy this. And I enjoy the character of Klang, and I really do enjoy how this one ended. Because one of the things that I liked about what we got at the end is the um, Santara, uh, the way this ending played off from the last book, where we saw Klag lose to the Santara in the lead Santara or whatever in a battle where they have to eat, stay in the circle in the last battle and they have the winner has to kill the loser. That's how they, they end up winning. And the lead Santara spared Clag's life. But now we learn in this novel that, well, 
even though he won the battle, he actually lost it because when he spared Clag's life, he the Santara stepped out of the circle, which means he didn't kill Clag. And because he was the first to step out of the circle, that means he actually lost. So now the Klingons actually won and now have the planet that the Centaur on under their domain now. And I just thought, duh, why didn't I see that? <laughs> In the first I didn't place. think about that at all. It's a nice technicality that they pulled out of their pocket. <laughs> yeah, it's like, why didn't the three of us even pick up on that? So I, I, I loved how that ended. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed this novel. And I think I would give this one uh, four orders of the Batleth out of five. Nice. All right. Well, uh, I'm really looking forward to reading the next one. We'll be doing that probably within about a month or so on an upcoming episode. So stay tuned for that. So, Justin, where can people find you online and on the interwebs? Well, you can find me elsewhere on the network co-hosting Earl Grey. That's our uh Next Generation Focused Podcast. I do that uh, every week with Amy Nelson and Richard Marquez. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. And you can also find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook, as well as uh, three different Star Trek books and comics-centered uh, Facebook groups, the Star Trek Books Discussion Group, the Star Trek Books Community Group, and literally Star Trek, where... I put up, oh, about a review a week as I finish Star Trek novels. So, hope you'll join me there as well. Great. And I love that you read the novels like you're doing 200. That's a big accomplishment. So, again, congratulations <laughs> on that. Yeah. It's a huge uh, accomplishment. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I've enjoyed so many of them that it's it's been a great journey. <laughs> awesome. Very cool. Thanks so much for coming on again. We really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me here. See you next time. So, The Order of the Bat left comes a calling i gotta wonder how often does this happen like are from this point forward are klingon captains who are part of the order of the batleth just gonna have to drop everything and run and support somebody who's fighting against some general who's being dishonorable like man i don't know i feel like this is going to create more problems than it's worth well, what about abuse of power? You know, it's like, I call all these ships for the Order of the Batleth, and they show up and they're like, what's going on? It's like, oh, I just need a little help with something. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, going to build a garage. You guys going to help out with that or what? It's very honorable. <laughs> <laughs> I was lonely out here. <laughs> <laughs> that farmer guy needs some help with his crops, you know, <laughs> feeding the empire. That's an honorable pursuit, right? Yep, that's the farmer's orders <laughs> of the Batlith. <laughs> well, it's been fun talking about farming and Batliths and being lonely today, but it isn't the only thing we've been discussing on the network, so here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, the 602 Club. Robert the Bruce isn't sort of one of these stories that we kind of get told a lot really in school and it's kind of funny that you're talking about that you, you've just read this kind of book about you know my first king as it essentially were whereas at school I spent a year learning about American history and kind of the rise to American Civil War and Civil War over like there there never is much kind of conversation about kind of Scottish history right, with certain things like the Jacobites and perhaps you know the classic world wars for example so like it's really interesting to to almost have this discussion. Melodic Treks. I think it's 
its notes and the, the combinations that they use. So they will use dissonance, so notes that don't really clap that that clash and don't really go against each other. And they'll use minor and they'll use minor chords. They'll use uh, diminished chords because those sound you know the saddest, the most frightening. You know they'll use those. Some, maybe maybe an augmented chord here and there. Literary treks. Data should have been XO half a decade ago. He should have been first officer on the ship. I have cost him years in his career because I didn't get out of his way, because I was too comfortable, because I didn't want to shake up my life, because I was scared. He says, well, I'm done being scared. I'm done being comfortable. I'm taking command of the Titan. That's the moment Riker says, I got to wake up. My life could end tomorrow. I need to do more. I need to be more. Warp 5. Okay, so Frankenstein kills a couple people, mm-hmm. right? Kills an old man, kills an old woman, scares a bunch of people, goes on the run, scares some girl guides, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, some Girl Scout guides, yep. Girl Scout guides, mm-hmm. takes her cookies. <laughs> yeah. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond, and you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit that subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and a written review. We'd love to hear those. If you're not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trek.fm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trek.fm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And if you leave a comment on the dedicated post for this show, we will be sure to read it in a couple episodes' time. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And you can find us on our Goodreads group where we have a bookshelf with all our previously covered books as well as the books we're currently reading so you know what's coming up on future shows. Plus, we have great conversations happening in there about the books and the comics. So just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shane Motala, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for literary treks as well. Dan, when you're not killing your long lost son, where can people find you? 
Wow. Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can find me on my website, treklet.com, where I, where I review Star Trek novels, both old and new, and on my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Productions. And Bruce, when you're not working long hours to reconfigure the main disruptors to be able to fire while you're flying among subspace eddies, where can we find you? You can find me on a Klingon ship on t- using Twitter, and my handle is at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me here on the network on Live from the Edge with Brandy Jackala, and we do that live after each short trek, and then we do it live on YouTube the next night after a new episode of Discovery. So you can also find me talking Star Wars on the Star Wars Report podcast if you're into that franchise. And of course, I'm always, always in the Babel Conference. So thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.